Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Yeah, we all want money, most of us anyway. But money and cash are not the same thing, uh, and that's increasingly the case. But you know, for a long time, if you say somebody makes a lot of money, you don't mean he gets that amount of cash handed to him, he or she or they. Um, we're going to talk about cash today, it's the specific physical reality of cash. Uh, you hear a lot about a cashless society. On the other hand, I'm willing to bet very, very few of you have attained that kind of state of quote-unquote purity. There's, there's some way that you, I mean, maybe you pay the person who comes to clean your house with cash. Uh, maybe the person who comes and mows your lawn, or maybe you write a check to that person, but pay the other person with cash. Uh, I go to farmer's markets a lot. I know they would prefer cash. And obviously, also, there are cash discounts all over the place. Gas stations sort of encourage you to pay with cash. Uh, They don't want to pay the credit card fee or they'll charge you. They'll pass the credit card service fee on to you. But that's you can see that in lots of other places, too. The place where I got cut my hair, there's a cash discount where I get my hair cut. (laughs) My hair often looks like I did cut it myself. No, the place where I get my hair cut, uh, there's a cash discount. Uh, There's a wonderful French coffee and pastry place in Wellfleet where I think it's 5% off if you pay with cash. So, it, it's it's not gone, but what's happening to it? We're going to talk to uh, three different experts about that. We're going to begin with uh, Jay Zagorski, uh, a clinical associate professor of markets, public policy, and law at Boston University Questrom School of Business. Welcome to our show. Nice to be on your show. Thanks for having me. So um, maybe we should just begin with why it isn't entirely desirable to go to a purely cashless society. One of the arguments you make is that a cashless society runs on, among other things, electricity and other kinds of technology that might not always be available, right? I do. I do. I actually make two points. One is from the society point of view, that using cash provides resilience because the cashless economy depends on three things. Number one, electricity. And when the power goes out, No electronic payments are possible. And powers go out in a couple of different cases. Natural disasters. We're seeing an incredible increase in the number of natural disasters. But it's not just natural disasters. There's power outages all the time, just for reasons. I mean, I can't tell you what it's like in Connecticut, but here in Boston, you know, every couple of months, my wife and I will be sitting around, suddenly the power goes out. We look around, the neighbor's power is out. It's like, why'd that happen? No one knows. You know, it's a few hours later, the power comes back on. So number one, electricity. Number two, we need communication networks that work, 
because that's how all these messages are being transferred between banks and retailers. And what we saw in Maui when there was big fires a couple of months ago was that the cell phone towers started melting down. They started being consumed by fires. And last but not least, we need reliable computers, computers that haven't been hacked. And what we're seeing is an incredible number of increase of hacks. And why do you want to hack a bank? Because that's where the money is, as Willie Sutton, a famous bank robber from a few decades ago, once said. So cash, it provides resilience for society. Now, the second part of this is people, too. One of the things that always strikes me when we talk about a cashless society is there's a certain amount of privilege and status associated with that idea. There are people right now who are, as they now say, unbanked. It turns out the Speaker of the House may be one of them. But, I mean, for the most part, it's people of much lesser means. So when you're sort of – and when when restaurants and, and other places of business, as you've written about, will just suddenly announce they're not taking cash anymore, they're essentially screening out a bunch of people who rely on cash, right? There's about 15 million people in the United States, and that's the official government estimates, who are unbanked. And there's even more. There's probably about 30 million more people who are partially banked. What does partially banked means? They might have a bank account, but they're using check cashers. They're using payday loan people. They're using things that are sort of outside the formal banking system. That's a lot of people, even out of the 330 million people here in the United States. So if we have places that say we don't accept cash, we're excluding many of these people. And many of these people are sort of at the bottom of the income distribution. Our poorest people, it's tough to have a bank account because bank accounts cost money every single month. And if you happen to be a relatively wealthy listener and you're saying, I don't pay for my bank account, the probably the reason is because you keep a relatively large balance at that bank account earning very low interest, if any interest at all. So while you're not paying directly, you're paying indirectly. Poor people, because they don't have large balances, they pay directly. Rich people, they pay indirectly to the banks. I mean, in a way, you're doing the same, you're making a similar assertion about yourself and about your status. If you, as I pretty frequently do, pretty much universally do, uh, pay for gas at the pump with my credit card. I'm basically saying I can afford not to go in there with cash, which I would regard as a nuisance. And I don't know how much I'm going to spend filling up my tank, so it's so much easier to use my credit card. But basically, I, I they're passing that cost to me this time, and I'm willing to pay it. Indeed. And many people use their cards when I ask them why they use their cards. One of the most common responses, oh, I'm racking up frequent flyer miles. You know, I'm going for free trips. And my response is, is that trip really free? <laughs> and I say, well, what do you mean by that? I say, well, how much did that card cost you each year? And people spend for these frequent flyer cards somewhere between $100 and $600, depending on the level of status that you were just talking about. You know, the $600 cards gets you into lounge access. The $100 cards just rack up frequent flyer miles. I'm like, oh, all right, pay $100. Then the second point is you were talking earlier in the intro to the show about cash discounts. Well, why are businesses willing to give you a cash discount? Because when you pull out that card and you get your rewards, who's paying for those rewards? The business is paying somewhere between 25 and 3.5%, depending on how fancy the rewards are. The more rewards you get, the bigger the cut the merchant has to take. So a really simple card doesn't cost the merchant very much. A really great card with amazing rewards for you costs a lot. So the merchant's bumping up 
the prices. Uh, and that's in some ways you're paying things back. And last but not least, not all of us either remember or can able to pay off their balances each month, which causes a large amount of interest. So you think you're getting, say, a free trip or, you know, you're able to, you know, at the last minute, go off on a nice vacation and it didn't cost me anything. It costs both you and society a fair amount when you really total it up. Yeah. And this this attitude, which I think, you know, makes a lot of sense what you're saying right now, it, it it's expressed even more radically in certain circles. I, I think if you go way to the right on the political spectrum or way to the left on the political spectrum, you have people who distrust systems in general. Uh, you have people who want to keep things as basic as they possibly can. And and maybe the, the leading prophet, if that's the right word, uh, of this kind of thinking is a guy named Dave Ramsey, who hosts a very influential radio show. He's much more popular with uh, conservatives and evangelicals than he tends to be with liberals, but it's all about staying out of debt. Uh, and he thinks that when you swipe your credit card uh, because you you need money right now, you need to pay for something right now. I think he calls it turning uh, an emergency into a crisis, uh, and or maybe it's the other way around. But anyway, let's hear a little Dave Ramsey. Uh, he's talking right here. This is a one cat. By the way, when you pay cash for things, it activates the pain centers in your brain. He's right about that. Several studies indicating. That you feel it when you pay cash. If you lay a couple of $100 bills on the counter to buy something, you know you bought something. You feel it. When you just swipe the plastic, you don't feel it. He's exactly right about that. So, I mean, he's not wrong about that, right? If you want to keep track of how much money you're spending on stuff, using your credit card is usually a pretty bad way. It just doesn't lead. I mean, there's a literal paper trail going through your fingers if you're putting cash on the counter. What Dave was talking about is something called the pain of paying, uh, and that we don't see the pain of paying when we do studies um, of people using credit cards. And why? Because when do you pay? You pay maybe a month later or maybe you pay over time over the next six months. But when you pull cash out of your pocket, there's sort of a bit of regret. And that regret does two things. One, it keeps people on budget. And two, it says, it makes them say, do I really need this? Or, ooh, maybe next time I shouldn't be buying this. So if you're trying to control your spending, using cash is a wonderful way of ensuring it. Yeah, but it's he, not he, he's just... He's got this. He's got this very complicated system of of on, like seven different envelopes that hold. He, he basically says, "Get all, get your money in cash, uh, the money that you're going to spend." There's seven envelopes, but I mean, I think his point is, and it's similar to what you're saying, is you also know how much you're spending when it's gone. Uh, so, so when one of those envelopes is empty, the one that you have for groceries or something, you spent too much on groceries. You will never have that experience using your card until a month or two later, right? Um, I, I do a fair amount of research on uh, people with control issues. So not only just using cash, but also on gambling. And one of the things I tell people is uh, right now, there's a lot of online gambling. You pull out your phone. If it's tied to your debit or your credit card, you don't really know how much you're gambling. You just keep hitting bet, bet, bet. But I say, if you're trying to control your gambling habit, use cash. When the cash in your pocket is gone, you have to stop. <laughs> there's, there's no other way. So we oftentimes have these problems with self-control issues and using cash is one of them. But there's other benefits of cash and one of the great ones is privacy. Now, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure say, ah, you know, there's no more privacy anymore. But do you really want every single purchase you make in the world available for marketing people to sort of fall over, to send you ads and to tell other people that you're actually buying everything, everything. 
Most things doesn't really bother. No one really cares that I bought salmon last night for dinner. But maybe people do care how much I'm spending on, we'll go back to gambling, or how much I'm spending on alcohol, or maybe that I'm on, say, weight loss drugs or something like that. There are certain things that we want to keep private. Everybody has something they want to keep private. And using cash ensures your purchases are private. And there's also something called the gray market or the gray economy, or there are a lot of different terms for it. But there are there are people who take that a little bit further. And for what I mean, I had a guy show up one time to buy my used car, and he was, I think, probably not from the same uh, sort of social and economic strata that, that that I was from, stratum that I I, I am from, uh, and he showed up with cash. He's just going to buy this car with cash, and I was initially a little put off. But then I thought, why can't he buy my car with cash? There's no reason not to do it. Uh, and you uh, took this even further, right? You tried one year to pay your taxes, your federal taxes, with cash. Explain what happened. Well, it says on the front of every single bill when you use cash, it says this is good for all debts, public and private. Uh, and the government issues all this cash. And our biggest debt is pretty much our income taxes. So I tried this past year to pay cash to the IRS. Um, I, I didn't even know it was possible, but one of my students actually found buried deep, deep in the IRS website, the instructions for being able to pay cash. There's only a few locations in the United States we can do it. Uh, I was able to go and get an appointment in downtown Boston, and I wanted to make things very easy. There are a number of people who've tried to pay the IRS by, or in other tax agencies by bringing in a barrel of, of nickels and dimes as a protest. I, I'm not trying to protest. I just wanted to see if I could bring in. So I went to my bank. I got crisp, brand new bills in the exact highest denominations possible. So it was a very thin envelope. Um, I showed up, had to go through security um, at the federal building. And uh, they sort of looked at me and they were like, okay, you have an appointment, you have your cash on you, but we don't have a courier available. And I was like, what does that mean? They said, well, keeping cash here in the, in the office is not safe. And I'm thinking, I just went through TSA style security downstairs. There's a lot of people walking around with a fair amount of guns guarding this building and it's not safe. You have to come back when we've arranged for a courier. And the whole idea was that I brought cash directly from the bank, and then they had to have a courier bring the cash directly back to the bank, which I thought was kind of a bit of a nonsensical system. Uh, it took so long, and I ended up going down there twice, uh, plus a couple of phone calls, uh, that I, while I'm a very strong advocate of using cash, will not be doing it again. <laughs> so, yeah, and there have, well, I, I want to back up here and say one of the things that I thought about uh, was, as we were getting ready for the show, uh, was the scene at the beginning of The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood's book and the adapted series, where suddenly women's credit cards don't work in this, you know, this fictional country where this kind of religious patriarchy is going to be restored and imposed. Suddenly, no woman's credit card works. Well, that's sort of science fiction fantasy. But I think we live in a world of things that we don't understand very well. And I am a holdout about Venmo. I don't do Venmo. And when people pester me and say I should do Venmo because it's so inconvenient for them that I don't, I say, how does Venmo work? What is their what's What are their security provisions? Do you know what Venmo is and how it works? And, and the conversation often kind of quiets down at that point. Uh, like, I know that Venmo, I think PayPal owns it now, and maybe their security is pretty good. And I don't know. But we use a lot of things that aren't cash in place of cash without 
I think, Jay, necessarily understanding exactly how they work or what their vulnerabilities might be. Let's, let's just go back to The Handmaiden's Tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, what actually happened in that show happened in real life at the start of the Ukrainian war with Russia. There were a large number of Russians who were abroad vacationing in places like Thailand, in places like Egypt. And suddenly the international community said, we don't want to allow Russian payments to go over the international payment networks. And all those Russian cards were still valid, but could not be used. And there were tens of thousands of Russians stuck in resorts all over the world who couldn't get home. And they couldn't pay their hotel bills. Mm. Uh, So it is possible for governments to basically shut off our ability to do electronic payments. Uh, Here in the United States, we haven't seen it. But in Africa, there's a fair amount of problems with Islamic terrorists. And uh, there's been a number of cases where large numbers of children have been kidnapped. And what's the government done? They've shut down the entire cell phone network so that the terrorists cannot make ransom payments in an attempt to have the children released. Well, when you shut down cell phone networks, no one can make mobile payments. So there actually is things like that fictional show you were talking about happening right now in real life. That our assumption with Venmo is that it works all the time and it's always secure. But that's not a great assumption. Okay, last question. Uh, I'm actually sort of out of time, so I'm going to incur Lily Tyson's wrath here. But there have been some movements, both here and abroad, uh, to to regulate or, or sort of regulate out of existence some of the highest denomination currencies. Uh, I think there is no $500 bill anymore, for example. And I think in, in the EU, they're doing similar stuff. The idea being, yes, drug cartels and terrorists, and that's who's using this cash, uh, cash at, at that level of a denomination. What's the argument for keeping it? Do drug cartels and do terrorists use cash? The answer is yes. But here's the question. If we eliminated all cash, do you think that would eliminate drug cartels? Do you think that would eliminate terrorists? Uh, I had a dinner once uh, not too long ago with a federal prosecutor who handles sex crimes. uh, And she says, I hate cash. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, do you agree that cash usage has been going down over the last decade? She said, yes, definitely. And I said, has that reduced the number of sex crimes? And she paused for a second and said, no, not really. So eliminating these big bills will eliminate one way people are funding crime and terrorism, but will it change it? The data suggests that countries that have gone cashless have about the exact same amount of crime. The difference is the crime is different. And what do I mean by the crime is different? We now see incredible amounts of debit card and credit card crime, where people can attack you all over the world. While before, say 20 or 30 years ago, we used to have a lot more in-person break-ins and muggings. So crime, it's just shifting. It doesn't change when we eliminate cash, just the type of crime and terrorism does. All right. Jay Zagorski, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Clinical Associate Professor of Markets, Public Policy and Law at Boston University Questrom School of Business. We will take a break. We're going to talk a little bit more about the psychology and anthropology of cash after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. More talk about cash here. Uh, by the way, at the end of the show today, we're going to talk about uh, ATMs, which we're not allowed to call ATM machines because that's repetitive. Uh, right now, we're going to talk to Ursula Dollinghouse, a uh, cultural anthropologist who specializes in economic anthropology and the anthropology of money. She's currently an associate professor of anthropology in the Department of Sociology uh, and Anthropology at Ripon College. Go Packers. Um, so, uh, sorry, I'm a Packers fan. Um, <laughs> and you're in Wisconsin. So, um I don't know. I think you just listened to the whole conversation with Jay. Was there anything you wanted to respond to or or embellish upon? Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, first, I just wanted to uh, correct that I'm an assistant professor oh, rather than <laughs> associate professor. Um, but I would wholeheartedly, um, you know, affirm everything that Jay just explained, and um, hopefully, I can provide some context uh, in the questions that you want to raise for me. Yeah, I mean, maybe just beginning with the idea, um, you know, McLuhan said the tool shapes the user. There's a way <laughs> I think that money probably shapes us, the way that we use money, the way that we exchange it. Um, that is very, very dif- different different from Venmo or credit cards or anything else that we might do. So in terms of our humanity, I mean, what can we say about the role of money? Yeah, thank you for that question. So um, as an anthropologist, those of us working in this space of money and payments are emphasizing, in fact, the materiality of different forms of payments, including cash. And and you're absolutely right to say that cash has a different materiality to it. Um, Take, for example, uh, distinct denominations of cash that make up a series of value in a given currency. And we may take that for granted, the idea of being able to make change with quarters, dimes, nickels, uh, dollar notes, $20 notes, and so on. Um, But in fact, um, that those denominational differences uh, can often have a social life of their own, as I and others in my networks have been finding. So uh, looking at what we, we use a design term to talk about this, affordances. So thinking about 
how the materiality of different payment tools um, affects our experience, what we can do with it, also how we can repurpose. Uh, I think one interesting fact about cash is that it can be used for non-official purposes. It can be folded into money origami, or it can be used in a whole host of ways that are not its uh, necessarily its intended use. It can also be a surface of political protest to um, or civic disobedience, as in the case of stamping Harriet Tubman <laughs> over Andrew Jackson on the $20 notes. So um, kind of looking at the materiality of cash and different payment tools, the interfaces, how we interact with them, the kind of internal design features is very important uh, to to understanding how people relate to and experience money. Yeah, and let's stay a little bit with the thing that you just talked about, because I think it's really important and interesting. I mean, a society kind of announces itself in a certain way by the way the cash looks and what's on the cash. And I mean, if you anybody who travels a lot, you realize that our money is considerably more drab and ugly than a lot of currency <laughs> that you might find along the around the world. And I mean, you know, Mexican currency, I forget what denomination of peso uh, it would be, but Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo mm-hmm. are on it. Uh, and there's another one that has uh, a kind of pre-Columbian uh, indigenous leader on it. I mean, we, you know, except for Alexander Hamilton, who got his own Broadway musical, but everybody else is kind of a president. Um, except that this really exciting thing that people barely know about is going on right now with quarters uh, and women on quarters. Um, can you say a little bit about this? Because I, I feel like this is under the radar a bit. Yeah. So uh, the U.S. Mint has uh, an amazing program honoring American women on quarters, and it's a program uh, lasting for four years. It started in 2022, and it's concluding in 2025. And so each year there are five women honored. So the first woman who appeared on a quarter was Maya Angelou. <laughs> um, and so the first, uh, actually the first two years of the program, those quarters are all out uh, ostensibly in circulation or in varying levels of circulation. And the idea behind this program is one, we've really never had a circulating quarter program or any money, circulating money honoring women specifically, certainly not historical women. There's a few exceptions, but, um, you know, and to the extent that women have been honored, it's been on commemorative coins that are meant to be collected as opposed to uh, part of everyday transactions. So what's really novel about this program is really the idea that you might get a Maya Angelou quarter or Sally Ride or Wilma Mankiller or Anna Mae Wong and uh, be prompted to think, you know, who is this person? What more could I learn about them? And, And in all honesty, I knew some of the women Uh, being honored in the program, but also um, many I did not know much about. And so it's prompted me uh, to learn more about them. And I'm currently doing a project with one of my classes where students are doing research on on the different women honored on the program and also thinking about what is important about the surface of quarters, particularly in in terms of raising awareness and and thinking about the program. So it's, it's a really fascinating opportunity to think about um, memory circulating (laughs) through quarters. Again, like the question is, are people noticing them? Um, And this kind of gets into issues of how we're interacting with small change, which I can certainly speak to. But 
I think it's a really important program and I'm happy to raise more awareness about it. Yeah. Now I feel like we need to mention one other person because, yes, you mentioned Maya Angelou, um, Dr. Sally Ride, Wilma Mankiller, and Anna Mae Wong, Nina Otero-Warren, who I'd never yes. heard of before in my life, a suffrage leader and the first woman superintendent of the Santa Fe Public Schools, is the fifth person on that first-year flight of five quarters. Um, and so that's, as you say, you, well, one could decide to learn more about Nina Otero-Warren. Um, but yeah, it does feel a little, if the, a cynical side of me says... This is a little bit about letting um, a, a less privileged minority move into a neighborhood after you've moved out of it. Uh, and, and, and there's a way, you know, I, yeah. I go to farmer's markets and if there's like change that's about to come back, I'll, a lot of times I'll say, look, I'm donating this to the cause of the American farmer. Just keep it. Um, uh, as, yeah. as a result, I'm not seeing as many quarters as I used to at precisely the time there might be something a little bit more interesting to look at. Yeah, I, you know, I would agree. I do share some of that cynicism too, but also I'm trying to understand how people are interacting with cash in their everyday lives in the United States. I feel like it's still rather understudied. Um, Of course, there are payment surveys, but uh, in terms of how people make the decisions that they do with different denominations or choosing to pay cash versus uh, with other payment tools, um, it's still rather understudied. Um, And there is a phenomenon where, especially I know from my students, (laughs) um, they don't have the same relationship to coins and even to cash that older generations have had. So I might even um, sort of add to the previous um, discussion to say that um, younger people don't necessarily associate the pain of paying with cash. Interestingly enough, (laughs) uh, they do have other ways to, to think through that. But in any case, I think your point about Um, Is this arriving at a time when we're no longer paying attention to quarters? Um, My observational and participant observation research is showing that to some degree. I would also add that um, in contrast to previous quarter programs, uh, commercial banks are not special ordering these quarters for the public. It used to be that um, they would order a certain number and people would come and get them to complete their Uh, collectible quarter books, you know, from circulating change. And um, I found that even going to banks, talking to tellers, bank managers, they're unaware of the program, (laughs) you know, so the very people you expect to know what's what's new with money, um, they're often uh, not well informed about this new program. And uh, in fact, you often have to have a bank account in order to access cash. So I have to put in my bank card and pin in order to say I'd like to have uh, twenty, you know, dollars in cash in two rolls of quarters, for example. <laughs> so um, if you want to make an effort to get this these coins, um, often you also have to be banked, which I think is an interesting point. Yeah. But um, I think they, you know, the quarters are circulating. I've gotten them in change myself. Um, Sometimes just asking cashiers or talking to people is an opportunity uh, to chat about the program and talk about people's experiences. Uh, But I do think that it's an interesting phenomenon that um, right as we have this amazing program honoring (laughs) Uh, women, you know, who should be honored, and uh, it would behoove us all to know more about them. Uh, yes. We're paying less attention to and, 
And hopefully, okay. hopefully, twenty dollar bills don't go out of fashion by twenty thirty, which is when we're finally getting, I think, Harriet Tubman. Exactly. Uh, so, so let's hope let's hope twenties are still important. Hey, we only got about four minutes left, and I want to open up a very complicated can of worms, and that is our ambivalence about cash. I mean, from you know, I'm old, so for most of my life, people have really liked cash and wanted to get cash. And Scrooge McDuck uh, takes baths yeah. in, in his money. On the other hand, we do think of cash as dirty. It is literally dirty. It is more likely to uh, contain. Or, or harbor on it various microorganisms that are not good for you. Uh, and, you know, Freud said it was a symbolic, it was an equivalent of a symbolic equivalent of feces. Norman O. Brown went even, even further and said it was the devil and all kinds of other stuff. I mean, we have an approach avoidance relationship with cash. And I just say whatever you want about that. Yeah, I mean, what you're referencing is the kind of long standing, kind of critical. Um, assumptions about money as dissolving sociality, as abstractions, as dirty, um, as sort of uh, part of the base instincts, I suppose, is what <laughs> Freud is getting out, getting at. And um, I mean, I would say that there's some people do it can and do experience cash and, and money in general in that way. Uh, but what we're finding um, among anthropologists, economic sociologists, and so on, um, is that uh, money is is uh, immensely multiple and that people associate uh, many more things than just sort of negative aspects uh, to cash or to payment tools. So um, I think what is important to maybe emphasize here in the short time we have left is that people may not be aware, um, whatever they think about physical cash, um, it is actually the only form of public money, public money uh, in terms of central bank issued money. Um, and so this is why um, central banks are currently uh, developing a digital or looking into developing a digital form of fiat currency because with declining use of cash, um, we're actually not as everyday consumers accessing the one thing that is issued by the state and you know, in particular um, so-called independent central banks um, so-called, I say, only because uh, people's feelings about that can, of course, be diverse and, and contentious. So like whatever we think about um, centralized authority, um, a lot of uh, the kind of seamless flow of payments works because we have that in place. And so um, I think it's important for um, listeners to pay attention to um, ongoing discussions about um, what's called central bank digital currencies and then how that relates uh, to cash payments. Because one argument that's often made by, um, of course, card networks and others that would like to see a decline in cash is to say it's dirty, it spreads germs, um, it's um, cumbersome, <laughs> you know, but at the same time, we're getting hit by all kinds of messaging um, in our payment lives, you know, uh, pay with this card and earn, you know, cashback bonus on groceries this month, or even uh, many bank accounts are offering, you know, bonus credits if you park a certain amount of money in the account and um, you use the bank issued a credit card to get more benefits, rewards. And I would admit that, you know, those are incentives that lead people away from paying with cash. I mean, I would include myself there that I'm often making strategic choices about that. Um, but I think money is a reflection ultimately of our sociality, mm -hmm. uh, collective memory and accounts keeping. Um, so 
unfortunately, we, you know, there is this long history of thinking about money in very negative terms. And of course, that's not to discount people that have negative relations. Oh, absolutely. You know, Ursula, <laughs> I actually could talk to you about this all day, but I'm literally out of time here. <laughs> Ursula Darlinghouse is a cultural anthropology specialist specializing uh, in anthropology and anthropology of money. She's currently assistant professor of anthropology in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Ripon College. Here we go. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. Our technical producer today, as usual, uh, is Kat Pastor. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, and she's the producer of this episode. We're going to conclude with a conversation about ATMs. And please don't say ATM machines or PIN numbers, uh, because the M is machine and the N is number. I don't know why people do that. Even companies that make ATMs use that term on their website, I discovered. Uh, Anyway, joining us is probably the leading authority on ATMs, certainly in the world of academia. Bernardo Batiz-Lazo is a professor in the Newcastle Business School at Northumbria University and has written and studied extensively about ATMs. Welcome to our show, sir. Thank you very much for having me. So maybe we should talk a little bit about the origin stories of um, ATMs. I know that there isn't necessarily a settled myth about where ATMs came from. I like the one where, inspired by chocolate vending machines, John Shepard Barron invented the first automated teller machine for use at a North London Barclays bank branch in 1967. But there are other versions, right? It is. I think your, your point is it's not one eureka moment. This is a machine that kind of evolved from multiple sources. That is correct. Thank you, Colin. It actually, the Shepard Barron story is the one that has gathered more attention, probably to some extent because of uh, Barclays also adding to that story. And they had um, an inclination of being seen as an innovative bank. So that kind of plays well to what we would call their narrative. But when, when looking at the archives, what you find is that there are ideas going around about this automation on the one hand, and secondly, and more importantly, how to move people outside of bank branches. And there is a couple of years earlier, for example, in San Francisco, the American Bankers Association, Diebold, which it's now collapsing or or has filed for bankruptcy in in Ohio, they presented a non-working prototype of a very futuristic ATM with video conferencing and, you know, these very 2001 kind of uh, settings. Now, even then, even when the actual products are, are coming to market, there are reports in the Financial Times, for example, and in the Times, which is two British newspapers, which show pictures of the fascia of, of two of the early devices. So some of this story has been lost. The archives for that has been lost. And then you have the Swedish development, which is completely independent. So the Shep and Baron story works well when, you know, you want to have this um, story or narrative of a garage and somebody having a eureka moment <laughs> and then coming to market. But it doesn't hold to, to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. 
My my sense is it starts though kind of in England and Europe in terms of proliferation, but pretty quickly the United States catches up. They're very interested in this whole thing. Comes in here in the 1970s. I, I, that's when I first started seeing them. I think here in Connecticut uh, gets big in the 80s. One thing that happened here, and I my understanding is it was a pretty common thing and not surprising, was the attempt to anthropomorphize these machines. So here in Connecticut, one of the biggest banks at, this t- at the time was Connecticut Bank and Trust (CBT). Their machine was called. Barney, and it, there was a little icon that had a face, with a real round face with, a, I think, a bow tie. And it was so viral that people started to genericize it. They would call any ATM a Barney machine around Connecticut because that was the name that people knew. But th- just the way we have Alexa today or we name the robot that follows you around in the supermarket, Marty or something, there was a, an attempt to make these things less machiney, I think, at the time, correct? That is correct. And actually, where they picked up big time in the 1970s is in Japan. But the Japanese manufacturers did not export any of the, well, they exported some of their devices, but, you know, about 10 years later until the end of the 1980s. But by far, the greatest number of deployment in the 1970s was in Japan. The thing, as you say, with Barney, and and you have other instances in the US of trying to is called in the literature Disneyfication, you know, making this cartoon character and making it more amenable, is because people were really not used to dealing with machines, let alone with something that would replace the way that they interacted with a bank. So the technology needed to be fine-tuned because these were very clunky, they didn't work well. As I said, people didn't know how to work with them, and they were throughout most of the 1970s, standalone machines, meaning that they were not connected to a computer network. That only happens until the 1980s and takes you know, about a good 10, 15 years for this technology to mature and start to be deployed in large numbers in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. Yeah, I mean, so initially the machines have this much more you know, sort of steampunk interior where your withdrawal, all you could do is withdraw cash. And your withdrawal would generate a token that basically left a, a signal, right, that Lily Tyson just took out $200. But they'd have to open up the machine and get those tokens to figure out what happened and then update the accounts, correct? That is correct, for example. And this is something that also ties into the established procedures in banking. So, for example, the uh, Shepherd Baron, which is actually the, the De La Rue machine, the token was a very large personal check that was caught inside of the of the machine so that it went into the check clearing system rather than trying to invent something new as you know connecting it to a larger computer center. And some of them had PIN numbers, others didn't. And even then, for example, there is a funny case or relatively funny case in Spain where one of the banks, when they launched their machines, although they could have a PIN number, a personal identification number, they didn't ask for one. And that was because most of their users were elderly people and they wanted them to slowly get into using the devices. So they didn't want to put more barriers and and actually you, you know you if you came with a with a card or a token or whatever you could withdraw cash from that account so they said that you know the losses for that were worth the 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 effort um, yeah i mean it's interesting too even now there's a difference if you go to europe um and use machines that do know your pin they don't have typically most countries in europe i think don't have alphanumeric keypads so if you've been remembering your pin 
as some kind of four-letter word. <laughs> You're going to be confronted by just a bunch of numbers, too. One of the things, one of the stories I know that you have that I love is, and I think this is fairly early on, but obviously not on the first day. At a certain point, one of these banks decided that uh, this machine uh, was getting a little grubby looking, and they painted the facade. And didn't it turn out some guy had written his, his pin number at the top of the machine? That is correct. And he was a little bit upset because he had to, you know, he didn't know how to operate the machine again. But in terms of functionality, for example, around the early 1980s, the devices could do, you know, a host of services. They could do transfers, they could do balance inquiries, they could do payment of utilities. But what you have is also the influence of people and how they interact with them. So you could have, uh, even for example, in China today, you could do like a zillion things in the same device that if it's in Europe or in the North America, it will do three or four things because people are not used to doing all of these things. And there is a little bit of element of repetition. And this that same thing happens, for example, with, with apps in your phone. You can do a lot of things, but usually you just do three or four services and, and therefore there, it's not worth you know, maintaining all of this functionality within that point of contact. You know, not to overfocus on the hardware here, but it yeah. was kind of remarkable that you were putting a machine that had kind of state-of-the-art electronics in it out where like sleet could get on it, <laughs> snow could get on it. I mean, typically a machine like this wouldn't necessarily have to be made to withstand the elements. But I want to talk also about the sort of human level um, effects of all this. I mean, we all developed our little rituals about going to the ATM. The com British comedian Frank Skinner has a thing where when he walks away from the ATM, he has to sing or hum the song Brass in Pocket. But I, I'm also just wondering for people who had to have cash under certain circumstances, did it change the way people lived? Could people be more spontaneous and say, wait a minute, let's go get $300 and go do that? It was initially thought as something that you could use out of hours. And coming back to your first question, banks were working and continue to work on alternative distribution channels, but nothing until the ATM matures and they appear more or less at the same point of as the point of sale terminals had really worked. And, and we're not going to go into the whole history, but it makes impromptu purchases easier. And it does help rather than, you know, having to withdraw cash at, in the middle of the night. Most of the withdrawals happen around lunchtime, for example. So it's, it is an alternative to the branch. And, and as I said, uh, it's also looking for other ways of making that space attractive. I mean, in the U.S., something that was big for a very long time was not only distributing cash, but using the ATMs to distribute postal stamps. Yeah, so, which is another line you don't want to wait in if you can possibly avoid that. And we should say, obviously, that ATMs, one of their immediate impacts was it was not unusual to wait in an hour to cash a check at a bank on a busy at a busy time of day or something like that. That's That started to go away. As we're kind of running out of time here, I want to talk about the future. Obviously, there's a sense that cash is less ubiquitous than it once was, although people use cash in lots of different ways. Uh, one of the things I've liked about one cha recent change to ATMs that I like is you can customize your bills and make sure you get lots of tens if you're using, using those for tips or something like that. But I'm, I'm just wondering. I mean, obviously, the other thing that happened with ATMs is they became 
more multifunction. It's not just withdrawals. It's not even just withdrawals and deposits. You can transfer between accounts and check your balances and probably pay bills from them and stuff like that. So I'm guessing ATMs aren't going the way of dinosaurs, but where are they going? As I said, there, there is something that it's that it's um, in in everybody's mind. There is a reduction in the size of the networks per capita, as, a, as that's a way that you can you know per number of individuals, as that is something that is more comparable. In the U.S., it's dropping. In Spain, where they had loads for different reasons, they they were per capita. They and and in total numbers, they had more than in the U.S. And people are using less cash, but it's something that will not go away. I mean, these changes in retail payments tend to take very long time to mature. Uh, you know, they're more incremental than disruptive. The ATM is one of the only two channels that financial institutions control 100%. You are not an, a, a credible player in retail financial markets if you don't give your customers access to an ATM network. And it's also in your benefit as a bank or or your necessity as a financial institution to have this because there are transactions where you need to make sure that client is present. You know, if you're going to activate a token in, in an app, you still need somebody to come and, and see that there is a physical person there. And that sometimes requires asking people to come into the branch or into the ATM as, a, as an alternative. And it also depends in which geography we're talking about. It's not the same thing thinking or experimenting retail transactions in a developed country like the US or in the UK, where you have, for example, Apple Pay that you know you can get rid of plastic. Whereas when you are in Latin America, where 60% of the economy or so is, is in the gray economy, and you regularly need to settle transactions in, in cash. So for these developed countries, it's a question of how do we manage these in a in a in a rational way or in a in an orderly way, par- pardon me, this reduction of an infrastructure that was built when the use of cash was much higher, and then we're not going to get rid of. So we need to have a smaller, but you know it has to be orderly, as opposed to developing countries or emerging markets, as you want to call it, where actually, for example, during the pandemic, the number of ATMs grew, for example, in Mexico. Which sort of makes sense because people didn't necessarily want to go into bank branches. We have to stop there. But Bernardo Batiz Lazo, professor in the Newcastle Business School at Northumbria University, thank you so much for talking to us about ATMs. The rest of you, thank you so much for listening. Go somewhere, get some cash and use it and you'll be surprised the way the other person smiles at you because they're not paying a credit card service fee. And we'll be back tomorrow.